2: Hello and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I am your host, Aparna Gopalan, and today I am so thrilled to be able to speak to the author of a book which inaugurates a paradigm shift in how we think of cities and urban space. The book, titled Making the Modern Slum, The Power of Capital in Colonial Bombay, came out with the University of Washington Press in December 2019. Its author, Professor Sheetal Chabria, is a historian of South Asia at Connecticut College. The book argues that cities are not naturally occurring spaces marked by lines on a map. Instead, they are products of constant labors of inclusion and exclusion, which more often than not serve to keep capital flowing and keep the laboring poor stigmatized. This argument is startling because it shows that urban injustices are not mistakes or signs of incomplete or failed urbanism. Instead, those injustices are the very essence of what it means to mark a space as a city. With theoretical acuity and empirical depth combined with an abiding concern for economic justice, the book takes us on a journey through colonial Bombay as it lurched from crisis to crisis at the turn of the 20th century. Poverty, famine, plague, political unrest. In this volatile climate, it was the continual appeals to the health of the city, which served to render class warfare technical, to generate consensus on anti-poor measures across the colonial divide, and to invent a stigmatized object called the slum, which could be used, and has been used, as a perpetual foil to the city, making the results of deep capitalist urban inequality appear like vestiges of an incompletely integrated native society, which called for more commercialization as the solution." This book is a must-read for everyone interested in urban housing and economic justice, as well as for scholars of South Asia concerned with the subcontinent's enduring inequalities across rural and urban space. I had the pleasure of speaking with Professor Sheetal Chhabri about this book. Our conversation follows here. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Sheetal. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. It's My pleasure. So um, your book, begins with this striking story. Um, it tells us that during the famines of the 1870s, when 6 to 10 million people perished, um, thousands of famished migrants set out for Bombay on foot. And we find ourselves now in a time where such scenes, which were, which are associated in our imagination primarily with the 19th century or the injustices of colonial rule, um, such scenes have surfaced again in the 21st century. So when you started out in your research, you couldn't have known that the things you were writing about would happen again the year after your book came out. What made you come to this particular project then? Um, How do you understand your intellectual trajectory now?
1: Um, Thank you for that question. Um, When I first started school, um, I was probably even as a child very interested in poverty and inequality. I was born in Bombay and I um, of course, saw poverty all around me. Um, as I progressed through undergrad and graduate school, I found different ways to try and understand the production of inequality. I first studied philosophy, but I found, um, and even though I found those sort of modern theories of justice and whatnot really useful, I found it too ungrounded, um, not empirical enough. Finally, when I ended up studying history, um, I was very interested in the ways in which India's poverty in particular or South Asia's poverty in particular were taken as very natural, explained away as part of um, a legacy of colonialism or a product of underdevelopment, but I wanted to sort of look deeper into how that naturalization happened. Um, So those images that the book begins with, it's very sad but true that when I wrote the the beginning description about migrants coming into Bombay, I was actually thinking about um, sort of the migrations his, um, students of history are most familiar with, which is from the partition. Um, and I wanted to um, sort of tell a story in which people moved, were displaced from home, were displaced regularly, not because of some eventful sort of political moment, but rather because of their everyday structural conditions Um, And so it's very sad that I'm pretty sure you're alluding to the sort of coronavirus pandemic and the scenes we've seen now in the news from India of migrants sort of being left to starve and fend for themselves, even walk back to their villages. Um, And I never, I I couldn't have thought that after partition, we would be watching that again. Um, But I guess it's all part of the sort of all too common way in which governments neglect the poorest amongst their citizens, um, and so though that kind of structural dis- displacement that you're seeing today is of a kind with the kind you saw in the 19th century.
2: Yeah, I mean for that reason, reading this book now has a added salience. Um, the book is, of course, it's called "Making the Modern Slum," uh, but it could just have just as easily have been called "Making the Modern City." Um, Because in the book, you basically talk about how at a certain historical moment, the health of the city becomes very detached from actually discussing the health of individual or collective inhabitants. Um, The city itself becomes the protagonist of much governance um, outside of those who make up the city. Um, This is a very interesting point. What do you uh, make of this Ossification of the city in the case of Bombay. What are some of its key features, and why does it happen?
1: Sure. So in the 1870s, when there were famines all throughout, mostly western and southern India, but in other parts of India as well, um, there was this. There was a part. There was a role all the governors of the cities had to play in sort of making sure that famished migrants didn't bring disease, um, such as cholera. Um, into the cities. And so they did a lot of work to adjudicate between what I think of as good migrants versus bad migrants, migrants who could be industrious in the city, contribute to what they called the health of the city. Um, and after the 1870s, especially you see that most, even in the municipal corporation, even in the trust and all the sort of parastatal institutions that govern the city, officials are concerned with what they call the health of the city. Um, for many years, I would read archives like that, and it seemed very normal until <laughs> until actually after reading Timothy Mitchell's work once again, I realized that this is actually a very strange thing to keep saying, the health of the city, um, because, of course, one would have expected they'd be concerned with the health of the migrants. Um, but in Mitchell's work, he shows that the city was probably the first place that um, what we now think of as the economy could be imagined. And I found this to be particularly true in colonial Bombay. Um, In colonial Bombay, every act of governance that was meant to exclude migrants or control them, manage the population, um, control the space of the city by either widening roads or making sure there were the right kinds of buildings, um, surveilling surveilling even vagrants in the city, um, all those things were meant to secure the health of the city. Um, and by the health of the city, what was meant by that is simply can colonial Bombay be a space for commerce, be a space for commercial ambitions to be realized? Um, and so once you kind of sort of historicize that, you come to see that you come to see the strangeness of it, the way in which um, migrants, the people who make up the city, not not just even migrants, in fact, often people who had been in the city for many years circular migrants who have been staying in there um, they were stigmatized demoted um, treated as sort of not quite city-like creatures um, and that um is a way in which to bring out sort of the historical conting- historically contingent nature of the city itself what does the city mean if not the people who live in it um, and so, because of that, that really opened my eyes into w- in, into the way in which the city was continuously reconstituted throughout the late 19th and early 20th century as a place in which particular kinds of activities happened, and certain other kinds of activities had to be excluded. Um, listeners who are more familiar with problems like this in contemporary cities will know that, for example, thinking about informal laborers is one way to sort to um, separate out the majority of the work that's done in the city. Um, but that's a product of a historical um, creation of what the city means in the first place.
2: Thank you. Yeah. In a recent um, blog post, you actually refer to this violence of classification as a form of subterranean class warfare, um, which actually undergirds much more dramatic instances of urban um, class warfare that we might be more familiar with, like slum demolitions and things like that. So I found that Really interesting that the exclusion of migrants and laborers at the very level of um, classifying them as um, unurban—that that's the foundation for other more tangible exclusions that happen afterwards. So thank you for that insight. Um, Your book very astutely notes that we often talk about cities um, opening up to the flow of capital, um, even countries, um, but certainly cities that capital as if capital is something that just flows. Um, But you show that actually to make capital move and flow freely requires a lot of exclusions and closures, as you were just mentioning, um, excluding certain bodies, certain pathogens, um, certain crises even, so that they don't interfere with accumulation. And one of the examples that in your book you discuss of this kind of closure exclusion is um, the exclusion of the agrarian from the city, um, how crises in the countryside are cordoned off from Um, impacting the city or urban governance. Um, So could you talk a little bit more about the exclusion of agriculture in making of the city of
0: Bombay?
1: Sure. Um, That's a pretty large question, actually, Um, and it's something that I'm still continuing to think about, Um, but it made up one chapter, uh, the second chapter in my book, um, basically, famine and even diseases that are commonly found in rural settings like cholera constantly haunted city records. And it, as most urbanists know, um, it's, it would be wrong, I think, to study the city without, studying, without contextualizing the city and its region, looking at sort of uh, village-based records or even what are the sort of conditions under which cities emerge. And all these migrants that come from villages, they, um, they are recorded as seasonal migrants, as um, circular migrants, and they flow sort of back and forth between city and country. Um, and, as, and I guess perhaps your readers will know, by the year 1900, um, I believe it was some 100 million people across colonial India were dependent on colonial famine relief somehow. Um, by dependent, I don't know what that means, but it was, this was in the Indian famine records, Indian famine commission records, uh, by the year 1900, some 30 million people had died of famine related causes. Um, I believe the population of India around 19 colonial India, which includes now Pakistan and Bangladesh. And, um, I believe the total population in 1900 was something like 250 million, although I'm not completely sure about that number. So if 100 million people were dependent on some sort of famine relief institution um, at that time, that's more than one out of three people. It's clear that agri- the agrarian crises, uh, by which I mean capitalist crises of accumulation, social reproduction, etc., were a constant feature of colonial Indian life. Um, and yet, if you read city records... One can start to, one gets a hint of that, but one also can start to feel that the city is, in fact, a space of commerce that's celebrated. Um, there are lots of biographies produced or, of, of cities, let's say, you know, the great Bombay, the commercial entrepot of um, British India, and they're sort of celebrating the glory of the city. Um, and you, if you just read those things, those travel accounts and whatnot, you would not know that this was, these, these, um, celebrated spaces of commerce were just butting up against so much misery um, so how those two become separated off uh, becomes a good historical question why are those thought of as distinct things um, and part of making the city, part of thinking of the city as the city is to exclude the very conditions under which it's created and the conditions under which it's created include um Improvements and dispossessions in agriculture so that you get the entire laboring pool that comes into the city. Um, It also includes creating surplus value in the countryside from which commercial men can derive the sort of extra capital that they need to start making industrial investments and investments in land and investments in housing, investments in, um, or even governments um, need that kind of uh, surplus revenue to make the investments to build the city. So Turning the, these two things into separate, distinct things is a way to se- both celebrate cityness and to make agrarian crises seem like they're a world apart, that there's some local problem or that there's something to there's something distinct from the um, commerce that's in the city. That act of separation is a fundamental labor that's done to make the city seem like a space of cosmopolitan flows and commerce. Um... And it's one that continues till today. It's, um, I don't know if it exactly began in the 19th century. I would bet it really took on um, much significance then. Um, But it definitely continues throughout the 20th century.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? Or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Yes, thank you for that answer. Um, these exclusions that you talk about, sometimes are sort of very direct exclusions, um, such as just not allowing migrants to enter the city or to adjudicate which migrants come in and which don't, um, or even presenting agrarian crisis as external to the city. But sometimes the exclusions are um, a bit more indirect or a bit more more subterranean, as you call them. I mean, the slum is obviously a key exclusion um, that goes into making the city. Um, You tell us that a slum is... Um, a kind of outside to the city, a kind of other, um, the space against which the properly urban is defined. Um, but even as the slum is the other of the city, it is also within the city. Um, how do you explain this? Or how can we understand that um, some places are marked as slums and not others? And places marked as slums are inside cities. Um, how? What, what makes slums sort of slums? Um, is it housing types, occupations or something else?
1: yeah that, that's that's probably the first question that I began this project with, which is why is a certain place called a slum, and other places of poverty not called a slum? Um, the term I came up with in my book is that there's a process of judicious illegalization that creates slums, by which I mean that if you were if it was possible to take a snapshot of the, of say the city of Bombay in the year eighteen ninety six when the plague broke out. Um, you would find that there were many kinds of dwelling types, many kinds of structures, um, some of which were permanent, more permanent types, and some of which were less permanent. There were many kinds of poverty. There were some people who were so poor that they were vagrants and beggars. There were people who were so poor that they were living, um, you know, shacked up together in tenements, sometimes 12, 15 people to a room. Um, And there were some people who were so poor that they were sort of living on the outskirts of a city in some sort of makeshift um, housing, and they would migrate regularly into the city. But out of all those poor people, only a select few would ever be called um, slum dwellers. And that was because once the plague broke out in 1896, it threatened the central space of the city. Um, it it, It threatened central Bombay's commercial possibilities. And so those particular buildings that needed to be cleaned up in the center of the city were selected out as slums. And so this is a kind of, um, it's ironic, but it would have been in some ways good to be included as being part of a slum, because that meant some governmental concern, some reform was coming your way. Um, relatedly, there would be other spaces of poverty in the city that were never even noticed. Um, and so the slum is kind of, I call it the internal other, the, the, the other of the city, because it's supposed to be the thing that the city overcomes. Um, so once central tenements are notified as being slums and, and in need of reform, they are demolished. Many of the people who live in them are never rehoused again. And um, somewhat lower middle-class housing is created in their, in their wake. I think that process of selecting out which buildings are slums and which ones are not um, continues till today, and uh, and it can seem sometimes arbitrary. Why is a certain building called a slum and why are other places not? But if you dig deeper, you find that there's someone's gaining from from selecting a certain place as a slum. Um, There's one more thing I think that's worth noting, which is that a lot of the... Images we have of slums in South Asia today are sprawling shanty towns. We think of um, large, um, you know, slummed cities, you know, like Bombay, Karachi, Calcutta. Um, But it's important to note that in the early 20th century, the places that were called slums were quite comparable to their North Atlantic counterparts. They were tenement-like buildings, they were called chawls, that were in the center of the city. Um, and they were selected out for reform and inclusion um, in because they threatened commerce. Uh, they were not the sprawling shanty towns we associate with South Asian urbanism today.
2: That's quite a change in, in the meaning of what, what slum means. And um, I really like how you explain the slum as um, the case of a solution finding a problem rather than the other way around. I think that's a very powerful um, way to kind of grapple with what a slum is and how it changes. Um, as your book goes on to t- talk about the plague, which you just mentioned, um, it becomes really eerie to read at this moment because so many of the scenes again are just very familiar right now with the coronavirus crisis. Um, people being quarantined forcibly or escaping quarantine, and this kind of constant tension between people and officials. Um, throughout which, as you just mentioned what was actually being quarantined um, was very often the commercial districts, um, which were being quarantined off from the people rather than the people being quarantined from the disease in some straightforward way. Um, So given the kind of commonalities between the present moment and the plague, um, the question arises, um, what were the key lessons that We could have learned from the plague in preparing for the present moment, and have those lessons been learned or been heeded in the decades since um, 1896 in the century? Yeah, that's that's actually
1: a very tough question and one that has sort of stopped me in my tracks over the past couple weeks. Because, um, of course, one tries to prepare for a moment like this when one does one's research, Um, but the images we're seeing out of India right now, and in fact across the world, are quite daunting. Um, That being said, uh, the plague of 1896 um, did require, it it resulted in a lot of quarantining, um, and many listeners will be familiar with plague riots that galvanized the nationalist movement um, against the colonial state. Um, And one of the things I try to do in my book, following some scholars like, for example, Prashant Kidambi has also shown That in fact, a lot of the quarantining measures and a lot of the um, sort of public health interventions that were taken as a result of the plague were particularly about class. They were about middle class and um, wealthy residents trying to protect their themselves, their assets, their capital, their future revenue from what they perceived as contagion um, born of poverty, born of disease which often went hand in hand Um, so in many ways although this the object of quarantining were the poor themselves what was actually being quarantined and sort of bounded off was the space of commerce and the space of of the city Um, with regards to what are the lessons for today well one of the results of the plague was that the city of bombay improvement trust was formed to clean up the city and the trust was in what, what we would call today a public-private partnership. It was meant to enlist the wealthiest um, Indians and colonial officials in the task of cleaning up the city um, and sort of make it profitable for them to do so. It would have been difficult without making it profitable for them to get the resources to um, do all the things the trust did, um, because there was very little political will to do that Um, but once you once they could enlist uh, property men in bombay by offering them um, handsome compensation for their buildings for their tenements etc they would have the resources needed to do that but of course this undermined very much the public intentions of the trust um or the public intentions that out of which the trust even emerged um, which were to sort of actually clean up the city, actually secure the um, health of the population and prevent disease amongst it. Instead, what happened is private property men were able to gain handsomely from from the trust's activities. Um, and the poorest um, were were sort of sent out of the city. They ran away um there were a lot more rural deaths um from the plague than there were urban ones and yet um the city was privileged as the space in which to remedy um or or stop the effects of the plague so i think one of the lessons is sadly that private interests always domineer over public ones um and i'm not sure we've come very far um in learning that lesson today
2: yeah um, there's actually an instance you discuss in the book, which really illustrates the kind of power of private interests. Um, you talk about how um, in Bombay, there was an effort by the British government to um, create, you know, sanitation systems, and that Indian capitalists actually opposed such efforts. Um, and that that changes our understanding of um, where the blame lies between the colonial state and native elites um, in the kind of health crises of, of that moment. Um, could you just briefly talk about, um, about that instance and what it illustrates? Sure. Um, this goes back to
1: sort of the, one of the first things I said, which is that explanations like colonialism or underdevelopment, while certainly true for explaining India's peculiar condition, Um, They're just not sufficient. Um, So I think what you're referring to is in 1868, I believe, Arthur Crawford, who was the first municipal commissioner of Bombay, he proposed a huge sort of sewage and sanitation, sort of water management system in Bombay. But Bombay's capitalists protested. They used, I believe, the Bombay Association to um, basically... um, demand his resignation and he resigned and you know till today Bombay does not have a very good water management system um but there are other instances um there are these remarkable records I found about um there was a set of interviews actually taken of Bombay's industrialists many Parsi Gujarati men um and others who were asked, what do you believe your responsibility is towards housing your laborers? And they were asked this because um, both in Bombay, in Karachi, and in Aden, all cities which were part of the Bombay presidency, there was this problem of unclean housing, um, shortage of labor, you know, safe labor housing. And by the early 1900s, officials were getting frustrated because they were asking, they were just wondering who's going to actually take care of these these laborers who are providing so much labor for these capitalists to make their money. And, um, almost all of them, in fact, I might even be able to say all of them, some 20 industrialists were interviewed and they all said, uh, it is not our responsibility at all to provide housing. It's, um, you know, our job is just basically to be capitalists, maximize what we can get. And, um, pay a wage and we have to be provide a wage that, you know, allows us to do our work and the rest is up to, you know, whatever happens. Um, So there's numerous instances of this. In fact, even the Bombay Chronicle, the newspaper that was run by Horniman um, in the 1910s, 1920s has quite a number of articles that talk about how the power of the wealthiest in Bombay was just, so overwhelming it would have been impossible to create any sense of what we might think of today as the right to the city um for for the majority of the dwellers so i think there has been such an emphasis on the colon you know the the explanation that it's simply colonialism that underdeveloped india that we've sort of forgotten that what does colonialism actually mean it might mean that um wealthy indians get away with not actually caring about the public good nearly as much because they're actually supported to um either develop the country or we think that somehow their wealth is part of national wealth etc um so i think i mean that, that was sort of the main thing i was trying to do in those in bringing out those stories is to show that the power of capital is constituted in a much more sort of complicated way than simply, you know, just an external imposition.
2: I really like the phrase, the power of capital. It's in your subtitle. Um, the phrase seems um, very just commonsensical in a way. And yet it is so profound because it is what accounts for the, what you put the rest of your book shows, which is basically the exclusion of the poor at every state. So when the famine happens, when the plague happens, when the trust is formed, um, at every stage, the power of capital is kind of what acts um, to determine outcomes or to kind of heavily influence the outcomes. Um, One final thing that you talk about in the epilogue of your book um, is a very useful take on the power of capital. Um, You basically tell us that um, the power of capital is able to subvert labor unrest in the city of Bombay also through appeals to the health of the city um, or to appeals to urban reform. Um, Could you talk a little bit more about these, what you call counter-movements and how uh, these counter-movements to labor uprisings um, rely upon the city um, or make use of the city? I
1: think um, one of the things that... Uh, those of us who are wishing for hope, hopeful that you know there will be some sense of labor justice one day, one thing that we have to contend with is that while massive labor unrest is happening as it did in the nineteen tens and twenties in Bombay, simultaneously at that time, um, there are other folks getting together um, and coming up with ways in which to undermine labor at the same at the very same time and a lot of historians that have i think correctly celebrated the labor movements of the 1910s and 20s in Bombay um have perhaps underplayed the power that institutions like the Bombay Trust or even the Bombay Development Department had in undermining any gains that labor could have had so um i guess that that i guess i was trying to Push in in the epilogue. I was trying to push in the very opposite direction to say how is the very idea of the city used to reconstitute or to capture the sentiments of not just wealthy capitalists but even middle class folk who want to live in what they think of as a clean city, a uh, cosmopolitan city, as in in a sort of connected to the world city, a world city. Um, how How is the idea of the city used to enlist those people over and above and against um, the interests of the laboring classes and the poor? Um, and that process happens um, again and again, and it seems so very um, banal even, so very simple to say that oh, I would like to live in a, in a nice city. Well, in fact, that very sentiment is what um, creates... Uh, creates opportunities for uh, governors middle class folk to get together and um, exclude the poor either by removing them from what they call illegal housing, um, cleaning up the city for for the sake of capital um, and doing all sorts of things that undermine the power of of even the laboring classes so I think about the labor movements in the nineteen tens and twenties there there is certainly more work to be done, and I do think that that was an I mean, that was an important opening moment, um, that I think we, I think in order to revisit that moment, we should probably ask, um, you know, what, what we could do differently next time around, um, to make sure that efforts of laborers don't get undermined in that way.
2: Or even to use your own words, what the, um, closures were of that moment, um, given that there's been so much focus on what were the openings made, um, well, Sheetal, this has been just a wonderful dive into a deeply relevant book. Um, I know that this is a pretty crazy moment for everybody. Um, so our traditional final question might not make as much sense, but we traditionally ask authors, um, what are you working on now? Um and, and you know, it's all right if the answer is just, well, just staying sane, um, which it is for most of us. But what are you working on now? What do you hope to work on in the future? Um Yes.
1: Thank you for the caveat. Um, I'll should i I'll make it known that um, homeschooling a young child, teaching full-time, and coming up with more research is especially difficult. Um, but before the pandemic broke out, I was trying to think about um, new ways to approach the um, spaces of inequality and poverty in India. Um, I've become especially interested in um, the question of why it is that poverty is measured in India by the amount of calories a person consumes. Um, and to me, that that is particularly productive because it brings together my concerns with sort of public health, um, famine, and hunger, and um, the governance of poverty itself. Um, that being said, ever since the pandemic has broken out, I have I have been rethinking some of my um, rethinking some of how I might frame those issues. Um, and I, yeah, I'm just going to wait and see.
2: <laughs> that makes a lot of sense for any publicly engaged scholar to be rethinking things at this moment. But um, your book is certainly very helpful to me and I'm sure to many others making sense of what's happening right now. So thank you so much. And thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me.